Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. A few weeks back I had a conversation with Phil and Jen that touched on housing security and homelessness, especially here in Austin, Texas. Originally in the call, we talked about the amount of money that was spent on promoting the homeless camping ban and how that money could have been translated to tiny houses in a local community that provides small homes for Austin's homeless. I had fact-checked the figure and could not find a source. Ultimately, I deleted that part of the conversation because it appeared that the figures we were discussing were not correct. I certainly am not a major media fact-check department, but I try to at least check and see if there's a basis for specific facts and figures that are claimed during the conversations I'm posting. We established the correct figure offline, and I invited Phil back on to discuss this issue further with the correct figures in place. And I suggested that we devote the full call to the issue of homelessness because it's a topic that needs to be addressed. Phil is a tireless advocate for the homeless in Central Texas. He's worked with that community in various capacities for many years now, helping to provide access to resources and information, and also help to bring these issues to light for those of us who may not be as involved. Being homeless creates a very vulnerable situation and even undermines a person's right to vote, stripping them of the small amount of individual political power that many of us take for granted. Before I got around to editing this week's episode, however, I encountered comments from another homeless advocate that I follow who was criticizing the tiny house model. Since I didn't want to promote something that's problematic, I took the time to review the post and the subsequent comments to better understand what problems the tiny house community concept has from the perspective of people who have not only advocated for the homeless, but who have also experienced housing insecurity firsthand. Their comments were insightful, and I understood the concerns right away. I don't know how different models work, but I respect the experiences of those who have had to navigate housing insecurity in the U.S., The first point was that some of these situations are not accessible, that people with disabilities are not included. I did Google the particular community that we discuss in this episode, and they do actually require that anyone applying for residency be able to identify at least one disability. I don't know how that translates to other models, or if they accommodate disability broadly or in a more narrow sense, but definitely accessibility is a legitimate concern in any solution. The situation of families was also mentioned, and again, this would be a legitimate concern to raise. Cramped quarters will not work for a homeless person with a child or children in tow. There may be a variety of housing options in these communities that work better or not at all, but size of a unit matters when multiple people are involved, and with a good number of homeless children on the streets, this is also something that has to be considered in any solution. I also noticed that in the conversation I had during this episode, 
the issue was raised that having a community like this creates a more efficient way to deliver services like transportation or distribution of resources. Instead of having to go to different areas in order to accommodate needs, the small housing community creates a one-stop solution. However, there was a flip side to this that I had not considered. Someone in the thread raised the issue that having a community set apart also creates a condition where people in this demographic are separated from the broader community and not integrated. It creates a situation where homeless people are sent away to some other part of the city where the housing secure population doesn't have to see it or acknowledge it. Again, this is definitely something to consider. Whether we're using this model as an efficiency or not, are we further marginalizing this population? This is something to consider. Even if it's a model that offers efficiencies, if it ends up segregating and dehumanizing the people that are supposed to be helped, then it may be that the efficiencies need to be sacrificed in order to promote a less efficient but more human and compassionate response. This is not for me to say, but it is a consideration that needs to be part of the larger conversation. Retention of dignity is very important in a situation where a person has experienced a great deal of degradation at the hands of society. One person in the conversation was not homeless, but was part of the tiny house community. They stated that it takes a certain type of person to be able to live in that situation, and that by creating an entire community, what may be intended as a resource could simply become a large homeless camp. They also raised a fair point about the cost of creating these houses and whether that money would be better spent on rent or hotel costs for a homeless person or family. This caught my attention because it was a similar point to the one that Phil had been making about costs to promote the ban versus cost to build tiny homes. So I ran a quick calculation. The inexpensive small house model we discussed runs $25,000. When I divide that by 12, it comes to almost $2,100 a month. In Austin, rents can run around $1,500 a month, and renting a room in a house runs about $650 a month. So we're talking about more than a year of rent either way, and perhaps more than three years. This does make a rent subsidy feasible and allows for full-size housing, the same housing the rest of us enjoy. Someone else noted that the small housing communities can come with requirements that don't impact those of us who are housing secure, such as requirements for curfews or sobriety. These are things I've never had to contend with and that I never considered, the types of stipulations that come with the simple right to some sort of shelter in which to just exist. Considering that substance addiction can be an issue in homeless populations, a requirement for sobriety seems unrealistic and cruel. I would think that people who have additional issues like substance abuse or addiction would need more help not to be rejected entirely. So again, these criticisms cannot be dismissed. We do talk about other situations and topics in this episode, and I did reach out to someone involved in the community effort to help guide the discussion. But it's a complex discussion with a lot of folks floating solutions, and none of these solutions are going to work for the entire complex community needs of people who are housing insecure. The fact is, just like society, they are a diverse population. But solutions that respect autonomy and integration and dignity should be the ultimate long-term goals. And these folks being served deserve to have a voice and to be heard. And their concerns should not be dismissed simply because the rest of us want to avoid being inconvenienced as much as possible. The best solution may not be the cheapest solution. And alternatively, maybe it is. Maybe these solutions overcomplicate an issue that could be as easy in many cases as just handing someone a rent check. 
Mainly, I'm glad I stumbled on these concerns before this episode aired. I'm still going to include the full discussion in the episode, but I think airing it within the framework of the considerations I just described is necessary. There is value in knowing why people advocate it, but also why people are critical of it and what their concerns are. I'm not advocating for any particular solutions in this episode, but I do encourage folks to find resources and information and do the best they can to expose themselves to as much information as possible, especially if that information comes in the form of someone who has actually navigated life on the streets or the social structure of dealing with housing insecurity. So I'm back today with Phil Session, and he has agreed to come back and talk to me a little bit about some of the homeless issues that we touched on in our conversation when Jen was with us. So welcome, Phil. Hey, hey, thanks for having me again. It's always great to be on here. (laughs) We had a few little points, and then you've come prepared with some data to talk about not just homelessness generally in Central Texas, but also some of the realities around financing that happened during the push to ban homeless camps. It's a multifaceted issue. There's so many players involved. There's so many different pieces. But for those of you that were not as aware, you know, maybe listen to that last podcast that we talked about a little bit. But yes, Proposition B was, you know, this huge push in Austin to bring back the camping ban. Uh, So this would be disallowing people to camp under say under bridges for example so in the main austin area in downtown there's i-35 that goes through and underneath i-35 is a very well should i say underneath it uh because of that bridge it forms this huge area underneath that is of course shelter from the rain it's shelter from the sun of course not the wind and the temperature but it's enough to get you out of the direct elements uh, to be worthy of consideration. So a lot of people will set up tents underneath that area. So they're around the parking lot that's right there. Um, it's also, also referencing people out in public parks, you know, down there by the river, down there in those public areas. And they're, you know, people can see them, especially when they're in tents. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, there's no hiding or anything like that going on. It's just, this is where people are locating themselves to be close to, so many services that take place in the downtown area. And so you try to think of services, but think of things, you know, more than like the Austin Resource Center for the Homeless Arch that's sitting there in the downtown area. But it's also being able to get in contact with a social worker, for example, because without a social worker or a caseworker to start looking at their particular situation, it's extremely hard for someone to get a housing assignment without being in the system. So that's, you know, being integrated into the homeless management information system, the HMIS system. It's different systems around the country. They each continuum of care is responsible for handling the HMIS for their particular region, especially those receiving federal HUD funding. This is a requirement coming from federal HUD that you must maintain the system. So someone has to fight to get in that system to get a caseworker that can start looking into things on their behalf, not just getting vital documentation and other basic necessities to verify someone's identity, to get them a job, because of course you have to verify your identity and citizenship when you get a job as a part of that whole process. So getting a caseworker first, just first and foremost, is 
a huge burden. There's only so many caseworkers. There's only so much time that each caseworker can give to each person. And so there's a waiting list before you even get anywhere, before you even do anything or start going through the process, you already have a bottleneck just right there at the gate. So you have a lot of people that are just waiting on an available caseworker to start incorporating them in and start working more on their behalf, not just as at being in the system, but actually working on your behalf to see what housing assignments are available, seeing what you're qualifying for, putting you up for one when things come up to grab. And of course, they have to get back in contact with you to let you know that, hey, we have a housing assignment. Come in at this time so we can fill out this paperwork and go over everything. There's so many pieces. I was just giving that as a small example. As you you see people on the street, you know, a lot of people are just in holding tanks for different things. Some people have caseworkers and are still waiting on housing assignments. There's so many pieces that are there. But in the midst of all this, Prop B comes rolling down the pike and is pushed by, you know, several actors that are in the Austin area. You know, it's not it's not just one group of people. I don't want to, you know, paint it as a broad brush like that, but you have political action campaigns such as Save Austin Now that was created and really pushed this campaign to push this camping ban through. Now, what Prop B doesn't do, it doesn't allocate funds. The county, it doesn't actually give an allocation of new funds to say, okay, this amount of money will be used in order to relocate individuals that are experiencing homelessness to this new shelter site or anything like there's no there's no prescription that was put in there except for that it these need these laws need to be banned they cannot be allowed to camp in this way and it puts the onus on the city to figure out how to implement this new law so it was something that didn't solve the problem something that forced the city to act and react to its passage in order to implement it in with no plan as far as what is actually supposed to happen to these human beings that you're now going to suddenly shift. You're going to seize their personal property and move them to a different area. And that type of action has already been happening, depending on where people have been camping. There have been people that have had their personal property seized already um i know like was i think it was closer to the city uh city hall or city council something along those lines where folks were forced to move uh, but it was for construction purposes was the uh underlying premise of it. they about to do some construction so we had to seize all of this clutter in the way and get that out of the way but it really did strike a nerve just about how how this process was being done and then the apprehension that it caused after its passage, not only in the minds of providers, group organizations, nonprofit organizations that work with those experiencing homelessness to you know, improve their lives in the, in the interim period while they're waiting on a housing assignment, people working to get vital documentation, get them into housing, some communities helping to build housing, just depending on the organization. So not, even, not only did it cause apprehension on that side, but also think about the people themselves because when we went out on the street right after the passage of this in May, we had our giveaway on May 2nd. So that was the day after the vote was actually taken on the 1st. And that apprehension was palpable all throughout the community as people were coming up to ask us, well, what are they going to do? Well, how soon? That was one of the big questions. Well, how soon? You know, when, when are they going to take my stuff? 
we got a lot of that. Where are we going to go? Uh, was another one. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's exactly what it boiled down to. And we could do searches online, but we were still at a loss as to what the actual plan was because there was no plan that was talked about or published because it put the onus on the city to come up with one about what to do about enforcement and moving and everything else. And so everyone was just kind of waiting on the city to find out what the heck was going to happen. And that's what kind of gets me to one of the first issues that, you know, I, I wanted to talk about was just the amount of money that was placed into this effort in order to enact this ban that did not give any allowances for what to do after that ban occurred. It was just do it, get it done. And that's kind of it. It's not necessarily to divorce from what I see online when people are talking about this, because a, a lot of folks just don't want to see people that are experiencing homelessness, whether it be in a tent on the street, you know, uh, asking for money or asking for food or something. And a lot of people feel uncomfortable seeing people there. And that's almost what this proposition looks like to me. It's like we don't want to see it. We're not going to tell you what to do about it. That's not our problem. It's just we need them out of this space. Let them get taken care of by someone else, you know, elsewhere, by somebody else's plan, somebody else's money or whatever else. But as far as we're concerned, we just want them out of this space. That's what this proposition looked like to me, because it just didn't allow for anything to happen after just kind of a figure it out approach. Um, just get them out of our way. And that's kind of it. The push to fund all of this. And so one of the one of the big players in this game was the Save Austin Now political action campaign, the Save Austin Now PAC, through you know their own fundraising efforts, uh, found articles on statesmen. And um, you know, there's quite a few out there about the, just the amount of money they raised. But you know, looking at this article, it was $1.9 million, you know, raised by the Save Austin Now campaign. Uh, the second most for a city ele election, that's as reported by the statesman on the 17th of May in this article. Kind of sit back and think about that. Just just, just a little bit. If you just sit back and think about that, the amount of money raised, I mean, and I, as, and I, as I said before, I don't want to push it to say, oh, it was just them. I mean, uh, there's a report. Uh, the Governor Greg Abbott's campaign spent at least $43,000 on advertising in support of Proposition B as well. And so it's not just this one group, but I'm highlighting them just to think about that much money that's being raised only to say, okay, we're going to pass this, push them out of our line of sight. After that, that's not the concern because none of that was written into, like that part wasn't written into the proposition. It was focused on getting them out of these areas, the traffic areas, the areas that they cared about, which, you know, your downtown area. Underneath I-35 at downtown, that's at between 6th Street and 8th Streets, right under uh, that area, you know, in public parks to get folks out of the way, but not actually afford any resources to help them escape homelessness, but just get them out of the way. You know, as I'm looking around at some of the larger players that are putting money into permanent solutions for those experiencing homelessness. So there, there is a campaign. So it's called it's serviced by Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Uh, they have the Community First Village. And what the entire program is about is it's a master plan community where they are affording space for 
tiny homes, um, as they call them, micro homes, RVs, other wheelchair friendly park homes, uh, that type of thing. And so it's creating a space where these small abodes can be placed and serve as a permanent exit out of homelessness by actually creating a home that someone can stay in and live in over the course of years as they are working on a job, you know, getting health care, you know, both physical and mental health care treatment. It's a, a large community. Now, they're not the only ones in this game. There's also like foundation communities, for example, actually builds apartment complexes from the ground up. Uh, where they can place people in that were formerly experiencing homelessness to rebuild their lives in a supportive, ongoing environment. It's serving as permanent supportive housing, which is one of the most expensive exits out of homelessness, but it's the type that has the highest rates of people not falling back into homelessness because there's so much support over a long period of time versus some of the other options, which are transitional housing and other methods, where the time you would be supported might have an arbitrary limit to say that after 12 months, you may not be able to serve in this housing assignment anymore, that, for example, that type of thing. And so it was supportive, but only to a limit. And if someone's not ready at that point and they lose that support, Unless they have things lined up, they can really easily fall back into a state of homelessness once again. And so permanent supportive housing is, you know, the gold standard. That's the one that provides the most support and has some of the best outcomes. Thinking about that campaign and what Save Austin now did to raise that, you know, from whomever, all the donors, they were able to wrangle at their side. In this community first village in Austin, if you wanted to support the building of a micro home there. It is $25,000 to create one of these tiny homes that was served as someone's permanent home within the village. Doing the math based on that 1.9 million and even Greg Abbott's, you know, 43,000 that was added in for advertisement together, they could have housed almost 78 people. So the same people that they were so concerned about and, oh, well, they need to get out of here. This is not a healthy environment. And all, you know, all these things you saw online about proponents of Prop B, like, oh, this, this is no way to live. And there, there were all of these things that were, it was almost like they were in full support of those experiencing homelessness. Like we want, we want something better for them, but Prop B didn't accomplish any of that. It wasn't built into that mechanism. It was all on other people to still try to pick up the pieces and see what they could do to house people even more than they were doing so before. Because the problem in most continuums of care is that you don't have enough housing assignments. You don't have enough places for people to actually go. Looking at this campaign and the amount that was spent, it's like you could have those same people that you're you're furious about, you didn't want to see them, you didn't want to see them when you parked your car or whatever else in that downtown area, the money that was raised for this could have housed 78 people under there. And that would have taken care of a lot of people underneath, even say the I-35 bridge at downtown. As far as people actually staying there, that could have housed almost everyone under uh, living under that bridge right there. You know, on Sunday, we see more when we go out there because people come from all over because they know that uh, community groups will be out there providing assistance. And so you'll have influx of people underneath that bridge. But as far as people that stay out there day in and day out, 
how much more effective would it have been to actually address one of the largest bottlenecks of the continuum of care in Travis County, which is uh, having permanent supportive housing available. And so that that's just one of those things that really makes me think about where the priorities are on these individuals that were so willing to open up their pocketbooks in order to pass Prop B, which is so, so much discouragement, disappointment, uneasiness, uncertainty, and the hearts and minds of providers, you know, those in government, as well as those that are experiencing homelessness themselves on the street. It sickens me to a degree to think about what could have been done with that amount of money, like how many lives could have been changed, you know, on a more permanent basis, had you thought back and say, what if we raise this money and we can help this amount of people escape homelessness? And once we do that, and once people see what we're doing, can we garner more support from, you know, all these corporations that are moving here, these people that are living in downtown, business owners that want these people gone, that do not want them there in the first place, how how much could change if their idea is not to get rid of them by moving, but actually get rid of the quote unquote problem by attacking those bottlenecks in the way that they actually can by using their money to support the building of micro homes to serve as permanent supportive housing for individuals in this region. Like how much of a leap might that be? Where I live, which is probably 20 minutes in good traffic on a good speed highway to get to downtown to the section that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. every single time the highway from my house to that area has an overpass over a cross street, there are wall-to-wall tents with homeless encampments that exist literally under every overpass. There are many, many of these cross streets that are going under the highway. And every time one of them goes under the highway, there's a homeless encampment. And this is the number of people that the housed community here in Austin decided to make life worse for in order to achieve a better aesthetic. Some of the comments that I remember reading and that I can still read, if I go on to next door, if I just went fishing on next door and threw down about homelessness, the comments are very predictable. And during Prop B, just as you were describing, there were people who couched their desire to just get rid of the homeless population in Austin under concern for the homeless. So they would say, Austin is not fixing this problem Living in these encampments, like you say, is unsafe, it's unsanitary, it's not, it's no way to live. And honestly, I don't disagree with them. But Mm -hmm. where we do disagree is that a worse way to live is to not even have a tent, is to be out in the elements with no cover whatsoever. And as you point out so correctly, if you don't have anything in your legislation that creates some sort of plan to accommodate the people that you're about to take their only shelters away, meager as they may be, you aren't really doing them a service. You're just making a hellish situation even more hellish for them. 
even just being in a state of experiencing homelessness can exact a mental toll as you start to think about you know, what your prospects are, your, your possibility of being able to escape that situation, because we, we get a lot of that people that self-medicate in order to deal with the gravity of how they perceive their situation. And then to come on top of that, you know, that state that folks are already in, even those that are still waiting on the system to get them out and get them assigned into a housing assignment, you pile on top of that this huge degree of uncertainty, depending on who they talk to or, you know, what information they're getting, you know, somebody could be coming next week, they could be coming tomorrow, they could be coming a couple months from now, just depending on where you are. And that would you even feel comfortable leaving your belongings for an hour or so? Like even if you like say you had to go to work. Folks that are experiencing homelessness, uh, folks do actually work out there. So that's that's one of those another one of those common misconceptions that no one's working. No, there's people with jobs. Trust me on that. We have helped people get to work. We have bought shoes, work shoes for someone that was starting with a construction site. We've verified that if, like, it's people out there work. But aside from that, when you're raising this specter of uh, potentially you losing your belongings at any point in time, that it can happen at any moment because when it was passed, there was so few details around as to what was going to happen. That's the environment that it created. And that's what we saw on May 2nd. You know, who's going to feel comfortable leaving their belongings with the possibility that they can come home from work and not find them at all? Things that they've been able to amass, things that they, you know, how valuable to themselves, you know, whether it be sentimental or more. Just having your stuff there and knowing and having the safe of mind that the place that you currently call home, that you're working to improve that situation may not be there when you get back. For folks that are going to treatment at integral care for uh, drug treatment services that are there have to have a concern that even though they're getting help and they're doing the right things, you know, all the things that you see in those forums and chats and next door about people doing the right things. Cause of course that typically comes up as people make the wrong decisions to end up there, but these folks are doing the right things, but can still face that same uncertainty, even though they're trying to do the right things, they are still penalized mentally from, Oh my goodness, is my stuff still here? Does, is somebody here that could watch my stuff? What if they leave the area and there's no one there to stop police or other officials from coming in? Like that's the uncertainty and the kind of terror that was created in the midst, in the shadow of the passage of this proposition. I think that is one part that is not focused on enough in news articles. I mean, they def- they report on it in a matter of fact way and, you know, they show folks that are experiencing homelessness or even interviewing somebody, but that shadow that this can cast over what is possible in the minds of folks that are experiencing homelessness, that part is not getting stated enough, in my opinion, how bad it's affecting people and their prospects, because that affects how much effort they may put into doing this, because a lot things take so much more effort now you don't have electricity, you don't have a way to get reliable transportation, you have all these things working against you, you have to work harder in order to escape that situation. And here looms this additional cloud on top, that your stuff that you've amassed may not even be there, the shelter that you 
relied on to keep you out of the direct rain may not be there when you come back. Right. We're not rewarding the effort. So people lose the incentive to try because when you feel like you're working hard to try and improve your situation and everything around you is just, it continues to get worse. You eventually are just going to say, why, why am I even trying, you know, just giving up because why, why am I here trying to get clean? Why am I here trying to keep this job when what little I have is just being torn away from me? I'm not getting rewarded for what I'm doing. I'm just still being penalized. I'm still being squeezed out. I'm still being marginalized. I'm still being disenfranchised. I'm still losing access to resources nothing that I'm doing to try to help myself is being acknowledged or supported by my larger community. And when I saw those attitudes expressed, people were frustrated by the city of Austin, not taking enough initiative, not doing enough to end homelessness and kind of treating this as this situation is not good. We need to offer them something better But right now, all we're going to do is end what we consider to be not good without another plan in place. Ultimately, what they ended up doing was not teaching the city of Austin a lesson. They didn't make things harder for Austin. Mm -hmm. All they did was make things harder for people who were already having a hard time. People who were already destitute were made even more so destitute and anxious, destitute and depressed, destitute and frightened, Mm -hmm. right? Destitute and more desperate. That's what these pieces of legislation have done. They are exacting a toll on the most vulnerable population, one that, as you say, doesn't have an address, can't even vote. How do you vote without an address? Yeah, you got to jump through hoops to do so. So these are people who more than anybody else or more than most people or among some of the most vulnerable populations need that power and that voice to be able to change the things doing them damage, right? They're the ones that actually need to have some say in the system because they are the ones that are most harmed by it. The ones that are um, granted the least success in our society, they are granted abject failure. We're not helping them. And all we're doing is denying them even the levers of what little power we would afford any citizen a vote to even try to change their destiny or improve their situation. We don't even grant them that. And these are citizens. It's disturbing to me to see how many people are willing to do this kind of harm to other human beings because of their own anger and frustration. I don't care what the system is that you're pissed at. Mm-hmm. Hurting people who are already hurting, kicking people who are down is not the right way to deal with it. It doesn't lead to a larger drop in homelessness. And even given the most charitable interpretation, oh, this will force the city to do something. And it's just like, well, there's a limit of what they can do, how fast they can do it. And they're going to need considerable support from the county, from private organizations, nonprofits that work from groups, from groups that can raise one point nine million in a short span of time in order to ban homelessness instead of fix the problem. Even before this passed, Austin was buying former hotels, defunct hotels to try to turn them into shelters or even apartments for a longer term, not permanent supportive housing, but supportive housing. Um, And so typically it's, you know, you might have a 
a more arbitrary limit on the amount of time you can stay there, for example. But it's better to be housed in the first place because that does so much for your safety and security, your physical, like those basic psychological building blocks that we need to feel in order to be productive. You can satisfy so much of that by having someone in a home, something they can lock, something they know they can come back to and get in and have access to water and heating and everything else. As somebody who works very closely with these populations and who also circulates between central Texas cities. So you don't just work here in Austin. In fact, you actually live and work mostly in San Antonio. Right. My question is all the different things that are tried, all the different things that are looked at, all the things that are floated in Mm -hmm. your view, what are some of the better ideas and some of the not so better ideas? In the city of Austin, there's, there's many more people in play. There's, there's a lot more cogs in that wheel. And so you have, Echo, that's sitting there, the Indian Community Homelessness Coalition, that's serving as the primary steward of the homeless management information system for federal HUD. They help administrate those federal HUD funds among groups that are in Austin, the providers. So this is like your LifeWorks, your integral care, the VA, you know, all these programs they have for targeting homelessness. They coordinate that effort and getting those funds secured from federal HUD dollars. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even with all of those different pieces in play, especially in Austin, so you have, you know, you have this group that's helping, okay, well, they're helping veterans over here, where you have this group over here that's focusing on young people. You know, you have all these groups focused everywhere, and they're doing good work, you know, of course, but the housing first solution, you know, it's something that's been touted for quite a while now, but it's the idea that rather than pulling people into shelter environments, emergency shelter environments, temporary shelter environments, transitional housing environments, that more effort is placed into a housing first solution where when somebody is experiencing homelessness, that they have a short jump to get into a permanent supportive housing environment so that they can quickly get back on their feet and not sink further and further down uh, in terms of their morale and their outlook of their own situation. The quicker you can interrupt that process, you know, the better that outcome may be for that individual. Some of the good aspects that I see are things like tiny houses. That takes a lot of administration. That's a lot of land. You know, you have to clear the use for that land and blah, blah, blah with the city. You have all that. But once you have that in place, you can then create permanent supportive dwelling after PSH dwelling. You can keep cranking out those homes on that land that can serve as permanent establishments and helping people to get back on their feet and build savings and get all their documents, get a job and keep it for a long period of time where they can graduate from this village into you know low-income housing or other supportive housing uh, that's separate from there. But I think the best ideas are the ones that are focusing on putting people in homes 
in at least in housing assignments as quickly as possible, whether that be an apartment complex assignment, a tiny home or whatever that might be. And so in San Antonio, for example, the San Antonio Housing Authority actually owns apartment buildings. So even in the downtown area, for example, they own several um, buildings. It's theirs. It is their property. And it is a tax exempt property because it's owned by them. And they can use these as low income housing for people that are uh, that are on Section 8 or people that are just escaping homelessness. They can basically have more units at their beck and call to be able to use for their programs in a way that they can administrate. And so it's clearing up one of the big bottlenecks, you know, along with caseworkers and their time is the actual availability of those permanent supportive housing units at the end of that process. And so any efforts that are pushing on that side, you know, whether it's building your own apartment complexes, which is happening, I mean, it's just a block away from me. They're building two new complexes, San Antonio is, that will serve as additional uh, housing units uh, administrated by the housing authority here in San Antonio. It's a long-term view of the situation because, of course, it takes time to build those large complexes, but it serves as a long-term solution to the issue. So those are the portions that are, to me, much more well worth it, can house more people, can support them more effectively, can help diminish the chances of someone's return to a state of homelessness. Some of the ones that are not as uh, not as effective are so getting emergency shelters like emergency shelters are good for getting people out of the cold, for example. So you have frost shelters or ice shelters. It just depends on what they're called in your area where people will be offered a place to come in because it's super cold outside. It's below freezing. Come in here and you can stay warm at least for that. So there's there's a need for emergency shelters to be there, you know, it's always going to be that need, you know, someone that's running away from abusive relationship and they need someone to go right now to get some help to report and unload all that stuff. Uh, So they definitely have their place. But when you're investing so much into the emergency shelter side, if you keep doing so and not investing in the exit, you're creating an artificial bottleneck sitting there in the middle. So you have a bottleneck of getting people, uh, caseworkers, getting them into assignments, whether they be shelter or longer term housing. And then you have this pool of people that may be in a shelter environment, but have nowhere to go because you hit the other bottleneck, which is no permanent supportive housing, no housing assignments uh, that are available in that area until someone moves out and cycles out of the system. And so you're creating this big bulge of people. And then eventually that's going to hit capacity. So you're going to have more people backed out on the street. You know, one of the exercises in Echo that we had done, because I was attending as just a community advisor for Austin Atheist Helping the Homeless and uh, showing up there just to hear what was going on in their minds. All the, you know, these are all the big players in play, as I was mentioned before. They were talking about that as an issue that they're seeing because they were just kind of going over problems that people were seeing, that type of thing, just kind of going around the table. And that was one of them. The emergency shelters, you know, you have these shelters that are in place and that fill up because they have nowhere to go after that. And that creates glut going back and back. And so you have you have less of a chance to help 
people directly because you have this huge waiting list of people even waiting to get into the shelter. And then the shelter is full because they have nowhere to place people to actually exit that. And so you have so many entrances into homelessness from people's unique situations, but so few exits. And so focusing on improving the exits, the amount of exits that are there will help improve the whole system. Because if we can start cycling people into housing assignments, getting them on, you know, the right track, you know, for their particular situation, getting them working, getting them in that process so they can improve themselves and hopefully graduate out of that assisted housing into low-income housing uh, that's in that same area, you know, hopefully that it's available. That to me is where the money and a lot of the time, the fundraising, a lot of that should go towards that end because that's the biggest issue that we hear from uh, beyond the caseworker is I'm waiting on a housing assignment. That refrain is so common and it lasts for so long that some people will end up giving up on the process at that point because it lasts so long. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the temporary emergency shelters act more as like an immediate triage system where people can go in the immediate if they need help and they need it right now. Right. But it's not a permanent solution. And what you're saying is that the heavy lifting and the biggest thrust needs to be ultimately toward long-term solutions of getting people out of a cycle of homelessness rather than simply an immediate shelter, which has its place and is necessary and does need to be supported and does need to exist, but that the larger problem is one of a sustainable solution. Without working on it, you you just keep putting Band-Aids on the problem. There are services, so there's, I believe it's a Sam Ministries here in San Antonio, and their effort is to stop people from experiencing homelessness at all by helping them stay in their homes or their apartments. Their intervention is to stop people on the cusp uh, of becoming homeless and keep them in their homes with financial assistance uh, and other assistance that they provide. That's a diverter from homelessness. But you have so many entrances from being laid off to not being able to find affordable housing, because depending on where you are, things can get more and more unaffordable and may push you further away from your place of work. And you may not have a vehicle of your own. You may be reliant on the bus system. And so it becomes much more complicated. Cities can make their building permits conditional on certain pieces. And one of the ways that that is done is to force a new developer to say, you must designate this amount of units that the city can use as a part of its housing authority, uh, its housing program for Section 8 housing for assignments that can be done with the city. And so the city of Dallas has done that where you have all these new places coming in, looking to build these snazzy little complexes and they'll come in and say, if you want to, you must designate this many. And by doing so, it can help with that same problem we were talking about of inflating the exits out of homelessness to actually create a unit to add to the amount of units that are available that the city of Austin or whatever city has to work with to get people into longer term housing assignments. Like you were talking about this community of small houses 
Mm-hmm. And how the benefit to that is that you have the entire community sort of centralized in that location where you can then provide resources without it being scattered throughout the city. Yeah. Right. So you have a community where community resources can be made available to many people all at, at one time. And mm-hmm. that's a much easier system to support, I would imagine. At least for the amount of people that they're trying to house, like this is it's probably one of the best kind of programs that you can get is having everything there. So caseworkers are available. You have all of your basic things that you're going to need in order to escape homelessness, your support structures. If you have all of those in place, then you can help guarantee the best outcomes. And that's one of the ways to do it is to have everything right there smack dab. Are there any groups that offer a foster housing kind of situation where people actually provide rooms to host homeless people as a, as a form of housing until they can find a better accommodation. I heard some rumblings about just temporary thing. Uh, it was, no, I think it was more temporary because of winter storm Yuri and people, you know, losing power or water to their homes and losing water for a longer period of time. But I'm not sure if there's a large scale outfit that will offer fostering like that. Cause I mean, you'd have to have the space to do it. So I'm not sure how large. Well, no, I mean, like, look at Austin, right? So if there are people who are renting rooms in their homes right now, Mm -hmm. right? Let's say that you have an extra bedroom and you would be willing to donate that to an, an ongoing homeless effort. And so what I'm wondering is, is there anybody who has a system in place where you could sign up and say, I'm a homeowner. I would like you to come in and do the review of my house, make sure everything's fine, right? And then pair me up with somebody that is going to have a room in my house and I can just host them until something better is available. It'd be an amazing, amazing kind of program to do that. But no, I haven't heard of a program that does it quite like that. Maybe there is one out there, but none, nothing that comes to mind through the It just large seems providers. to me like such a like such an easy thing to do is I mean, I understand that there's gonna be, you know, safety concerns for everybody sure. involved. You wanna make sure that the person that's homeless is not in a dangerous situation. You wanna make sure that the people that you're running to are not in a situation they can't handle. If someone has, like you said, substance abuse issues or special needs, definitely you would need to take that into account. But I'm sure that you could find just like with uh, big brothers, big sisters, or with foster children, you match people. You don't just throw mm-hmm. a kid at a family. Like you have to look at the child and you have to look at the family. Some children, for example, don't do well with other children. So if somebody wants to do foster care, but they have other children in the home, there might be a child that's not really socialized with other children very well, mm-hmm. that isn't going to do good in that home. So you have to vet the families specifically to the person. And I just don't see why it would be any different with an adult. The Housing Authority of the City of Austin, um, HACA, uh, they are the ones that connect with landlords to say that, you know, you have this many units available, you know, and to put that information up. And I'm, I'm seeing here that, you know, you can go to section8.com. Like this is off of uh, HACA's own website uh, that you can list your property as an available Section 8 space. But I'm not sure what restrictions might be around that. It says go section8.com to sign up and increase the availability of property of your properties and to local housing authorities. And so, you know, maybe there may be an avenue there for someone, but I'm not sure how granular it might get where someone has their own house that they're doing a room versus they have that second house that's on their property, you know, that contained unit. It may be worth looking at the housing authority of your local area to see 
what they may offer in terms of that, because they will do a lot of the the making of the list, you know, the housing assistance list. You know, the housing authority typically is the one that will administrate that. You get on the list, you have to apply to be on there in the first place, and then you get put on the list where you're waiting on a housing assignment to pop up and be informed that, yes, you have a place to go. This is how much help you'll be getting to stay here. And this is how much you'll have to be responsible for, et cetera. I always think whenever I think of anything that mm-hmm. it's not, it's not new. Right? <laughs> I mean, if I think of something, I Google it and there it is. So there may be something like this. I'm just not sure where I would even start to look for it. I think that would be an interesting way to mm-hmm. use spare space in houses that isn't being used and that the city could take advantage of to sort of help with this problem. You and I now both are on the board of directors of Foundation Beyond Belief. Yes, we are. (laughs) And Foundation Beyond Belief also supports a lot of your efforts into your activism with the homeless. Is that correct? Yes, yes, it, it has. It's been the a part of the Beyond Belief Network, which is a program that FBB administrates that that gives assistance to local groups around the U.S. and internationally. So these are, you know, think of you know you and a group of your friends. Let's say you live in a you know particular community and you go out to pick up trash on the side of one of the busier streets uh, that are in there, and so. For groups that you know have the motivation to do uh, that type of thing, uh, they can get rewarded based on how many events they're actually doing. So you know, so you coordinate an event, so a street cleaning event, you're gonna do this, or you got some friends together, y'all are gonna put bags of food together, so you have apples, oranges, you know, some fresh produce or something like that, and you're gonna hand them out to folks experiencing homelessness, those kind of events. There's so many, a variety of events. I don't take that as gospel. There's so many out there, but essentially as you complete those events, you get access to more and more benefits. And so if you complete just four events in any calendar year, uh, your group will be eligible to get free t-shirts with the name of your group. Or if you have like a logo or you know one of those, uh, something like that, you can have a shirt made that has that logo on it for free and it will be sent to, you know, whoever's the organizer's address. What's more than that is you also get free publicity. So if you have a campaign that's coming up, you have a special program that you're wanting to get more eyes on, you can ask BBN and they will put it out on their social media and do a big blast about it to get more eyes on the events you're trying to do. And the fact that if you need fundraising or whatever else can help with getting that type of logistics together. They can help you do a fundraiser outright, uh, for example. And just for the folks at home, BBN is the Beyond Belief Network, which is part of um, Foundation Beyond Belief. Yes, yes. It is a, a program that's gotten considerably uh, larger. There's you know quite a few teams out there that are active, including mine, uh, both in San Antonio and in Austin, uh, because even before I joined the board of directors several years ago, I still had my BBN teams and we were actively out there. I mean, the T-shirts alone have been huge. You also get eligible to ask for grants. So the first grant we ever tried to do was based on a poll. So every about four months or so, so maybe three times a year in Austin, we will go out. We'll have one volunteer that has you know a paper and a pen. And they will ask people as they go through the line to say, hey, 
know, is there something that we could, is there something that we could pick up for you? Is there something that is missing, you know, not, not, not necessarily from our group, but just in general out here, is there something that you don't see often and it helps inform us on what we could be doing better, what things we need, we need to maybe nix and what things we may need to add, that type of thing. And so it's a, a survey of the folks that we serve to let us know how to serve them better. Long story short. And one of those, it was around the October region. You know, we had always gotten requests for socks, but in particular, it was thermal socks or some type of socks to help people keep warm when it gets cold out. That was the idea. And so we ended up contacting the Beyond Belief Network via FBB and asking about, say, we want to do this and it's going to cost this much. You know, we searched out to go find reasonably priced socks for thermal socks that people can, you know, have for a while. They're not white, you know, they're a, a grayish and black so that they will not show wear and tear as easily as white socks, reasonably priced per person, per uh, pair of socks. So this is our idea. This is what we want to do. And we actually got approved for that. And we were able to go out and buy not only thermal socks, but we also got donations of gloves. Oh, my, uh, one of our Donors from overseas donated just boxes of thermal mittens for us to give out. And so because of being in BBN and being an active team, we were able to send a request. You know, there's no guarantee that it's going to be granted, uh, you know, but to submit your requests in for it to be evaluated, you know, and of course, they'll look at the history of your team and what you're trying to do. And for you being that local team, you know, uh, you will have the best chance of knowing what's going to impact your community better than other people. So you may be able to tell me in your community what your folks need better than what I can. I can give you a general overview based on my experience in Austin, but that may be very different than where you are. And so having a local group reach out to say, we want to do this. This is something that our community needs, and this is how much it's going to cost uh, to fund it and putting in that request. But that only opens up to you if you're a part of the BBN program. And so it's a wonderful program that I've been very happy to be a part of and to kind of help in its growth a little bit here and there in my, my little meager way uh, <laughs> as I could, because uh, it's, it's definitely worth it. Um, and the stories you get out of, you know, people around the globe, you know, there's a, a group out of the Philippines even that does work. And, you know, you see pictures of what will be gone over of there, if, you know, if, it's, if they're doing a food event or something like that, it just, it looks amazing. And just to see, uh, what other folks are doing in general. And it also gives ideas um, because there's a lot of sharing of what you can expect. And so I've shared with BBN in general, but also with individuals that will contact our group to say, like, how can I do something like this? And we have now like maybe about four pages of instruction that go around starting this group, like the what you the pitfalls and, you know, how you can do this and, you know, to do it cheaply, but do it effectively for the people that you're serving so much in the BBN program. So I encourage you, if you haven't heard about it, or you have a group of folks that are interested, even in your local area, maybe you haven't done anything at all. There's a lot of help as far as even ideas of getting started in the first place, let alone some support that can come of you being a BBN team over time, submitting your events in. And if people want to support that effort, they can do targeted giving over at FBB, right? It's not just a general donation. You can actually target your donation. Isn't that right? 
Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. If you go to foundationbeyondbelief.org or just you know search Foundation Beyond Belief on Google on that main page, there'll be uh, there'll be a big give button uh, <laughs> that's sitting uh, right there. And so if there is a specific person or a, a specific you know organization, maybe you're giving on behalf of organization or whatever else, or you want a specific thing it to be attributed to, then you can place that there in order to earmark it for certain programs. And so BBN is certainly one of those big programs that uh, you can earmark funds into. So just to you know, know that you're getting your bang for your buck in the way that you want it to be spent, you know, it's uh, free and clear for you to put in what you would like it to be there. Did Foundation Beyond Belief support the bus passes that we talked about last time? Uh, we were inducted as a part of a, it's a new program that FBB through the BBN program has initiated, which is focused on addressing food insecurity. They brought in five teams, five BBN teams that had done work previously regarding food events around food insecurity. And this new program will now uh, supply you know a certain amount of money to each of these groups every single month to help defray the costs that go into securing, you know, food, produce, you know, all the uh, different aspects that go into doing those food giveaways. And so, uh, say back in May, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, on that weekend, we typically give out bus passes. So it's once every uh, once every three months, and we do that based on a grant that we receive, and we're able to facilitate 200 bus passes out. But the amount of people that we have served has gone up considerably because we now go to several places. We go to different locations. And so what always happened was we would start to run out and you start getting low and you're in this area and it's mortifying. It is nerve wracking knowing that you're about to run out of bus passes and you still see this line in front of you. People are excited. I may talk about this a little bit later, but it was, you know, there's excitement. There is there's hope that you can see in the faces of people when they're getting, you know, that kind of access and the prospect of losing uh, that access be- just because they didn't get in line fast enough. People take that with grace, you know, to think that they were standing in line for however long. And just before we got to them, we gave out the last one. And, you know, we've had people just kind of walk away, just kind of disappointed with people get angry at themselves because, you know, they took one turn or they, they talked to somebody for, you know, five minutes earlier right. this morning and you, they didn't make it into line uh, soon enough. If they would have, wouldn't have had that conversation, they would have been there a little, you know, you have that type of thing and it hurts a lot. Like, I mean, on the, I mean, not alone their side, even from my perspective, it's just like, I can't, I'm so sorry. This is all we have. I mean, there's something we can do about it. Like we can't change how much we have, at least at that point in time when you're actively out there. But man, you feel it in the faces. Then and then people still come up afterwards saying, "Hey, you have any more left?" And you have to say, "No, we're, we're all out." And it's it's kind of that same thing over and over again. Now, because we received the food insecurity grant, we were able to put additional monies since our food was taken care of for that month towards buying additional passes. And so we were able to give out 15 additional bus passes, month-long bus passes than we would have before. And it was, it doesn't seem like a lot, you know, even the number like 50, oh, well, what's 15? That means the world to those 15 that got that best pass that they would have missed out on. 
And I just want to say, you, you've already said that it's a month-long bus pass. So this is, this is a month's worth of transportation. And these are people that have difficulty getting to go see their social workers, making appointments. If they have a job interview and they're lucky enough to try to you know, get a position somewhere and try to improve their station, they need to be able to get there. And this bus pass offers them that freedom and that opportunity that they otherwise would not have. Now, I was surprised last time we talked that the cost of a bus pass only runs about $20. Is that right? So there's a program that is offered. This is in particular for Capital Metro and Austin. However, other other cities, including San Antonio, that do something similar. So if you are a nonprofit organization in the city of Austin, you can actually approach Capital Metro and apply to be a part of the what's called the discount pass program. And you do have to apply. There is there are forms you have to fill out and verifying, uh, you know, your identity and such. And also they go into, well, what are you going to use these passes for? And so their program is to evaluate an entity. So you have a community group, you have a nonprofit or whatever that's saying, okay, this is what we're using them for. This is how we're distributing them. And they also ask, well, how much are you going to charge people? Because there are organizations that will say there might be a nonprofit organization that buys them and sells them for $10 instead, that type of thing, to where they shoulder most of the costs, but they still get a little of that cost reimbursed by the person that they're giving recipients to. So that's a valid program as well. Uh, and there's stipulation as far as how much you can charge, et cetera. But for our purposes, we're dealing with folks that do not have money. And if they do have money, it's extremely a small amounts from a job that they're working and we were not going to charge anyone anything. Once we sent all that in, they said, yes, your, your program does qualify because I was able to show them pictures of what our giveaways look like, what the intended use was for, how we would administrate the handing out of them and ensuring that everyone only gets one, that type of thing. So it qualified. And so because of that, the price went from $41.25 down to $20.70 and some change. So that, that's about where you're looking at. So just over $20 gives us the ability to provide one full month of travel for someone experiencing homelessness. And it's not one month flat out. It's one month from the date you actually use it the first time. They can hold it for you know however long they need until they need to go to their appointment or something like that and then activate it for the first time. And so there's some carryover into the next month, depending on how soon people need to use it. That That's what starts your 31 days is the first swipe. It's an amazing program. It is on what I was mentioning earlier, the poll that we'll do when we go out and ask people what they need. The number one thing that hit, this is from years ago, my goodness, uh, when we first started doing those polls was transportation, bus passes. It kept coming up. It kept coming up. And as we looked into it, I said, well, we don't have the resources for that. Or how would we actually do that? You know, it was these logistical talks that went on behind the scene until I started kind of pushing that program a little further and seeing what was actually needed to commence this type of thing. How could we sustain it for what price, et cetera? It's become a huge thing. And so I, I wanted to read just this, um, this small excerpt that we had from somebody that contacted us very recently. This is less than a month ago, actually about bus passes in particular. And they said, you know, their partner and they were are in desperate need of two one month bus passes. You know, we've been homeless for a year and a half and just got housing 
through the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition, ECHO. And they are both in getting outpatient treatment at Integral Care, and they go there daily with the exception of Sunday. And she goes on, my boyfriend has been able to secure employment across the street from where we live so he can walk to work, but we have no money to get the bus all the way to outpatient every morning. Bus passes are a little over $80 a month for both of us. He won't get his first paycheck for weeks. And then that check will go completely to utility bills. Uh, She ends it. I think we can figure out how to get by in every respect except for bus passes. And that's, you know, how we were approached uh, by this person initially. And like they're doing all the right things. I I know we said that before that all the right things. They did all the applications and waited on the caseworker to call them back. And they have all these pieces but now since they're going you know, back and forth to integral care, they got a housing assignment, but nothing provided for them as to how to get there and back. And so it's been walking. And this is not just a small amount. This is miles and miles away to get to this service center. And if they're fortunate enough to get a one-day bus pass, they can then use that to work out that travel if they can get a hold of one. But otherwise, they have to walk miles there and miles back in order to attend you know, that outpatient treatment there. And so it makes a huge difference for them. And when I told them after we verified their identity and gone through a lot of that stuff, the administrative stuff in the background, we were able to commit to them as a part of a brand new bus program that we're doing to provide people with not just one month of bus travel every three months, but for specific people, we'll provide a bus pass every single month for no less than six months. How we're looking at this is people that are trying to do better, they're trying to do all the right things. They still need that support. And if they get that support, that can do uh, make all the difference as they're trying to get their lives back to the way that they want to live them and uh, try to improve their situation as time goes on. But it's in these cruxes, just like this, a recent housing assignment, they see a light at the end of the tunnel almost. It, it is palpable now. They have gotten their housing assignment. They have a place to lay their heads at night. You know, they're struggling for money still, but they're working that out now that he's working. And so there's progress being made, but there's still little pieces that they can use support on. And if they get that support, they can continue on about their journey to escape a life of experiencing homelessness on a permanent level. And so that is what this program is designed to help. It's designed to provide that additional support. And it's so badly needed, far more than you might think, oh, what what good does a bus pass do? It does absolutely wonders for folks like this. And this is an opportunity, I think, for a society to step up and help ensure someone's success. You have this couple that is trying really hard and they're still struggling to get to outpatient drug treatment, basically. I just think we could give somebody $20 a month. It opens up a world of possibilities. I don't want to aggrandize it too much, but it's hard to state what the impact of just providing someone with travel and not having them worry about how they were going to get here or there for an entire month. Like the whole month is just taken care of at that point. They can now get from here to there to their appointments, to their caseworker, to go visit another, if there's another nonprofit that's offering supports, such as, you know, people that are uh, helping with vital documentation and status papers or something like that. You can get there and back without having to walk in this Texas heat, no less 
for however many miles to get there and back. It really makes a change. And we've definitely seen it out there on the streets. There are other groups that come out there that know exactly who we are as Austin Atheists Helping the Homeless because of this bus pass program, because our name is known out on the streets. Now, I mean, they may not know the full name. It's usually like Austin Atheist Group or the or just the Atheist Group or something like right. that. Uh, it'll be right. something shorter versus the full thing. But we get approached by other providers. And so there is a, a small Baptist church that gives out soup and other small uh, edible bits a couple times a day right there at Cesar Chavez in San Marcos. This is in the downtown Austin area. Uh, so the leader of that group, the pastor that was there actually came over to speak with us. So we're doing our normal giveaway, you know, as we normally do our, our thing. And he came over just to say, hi, you know, just check to see what we were doing, blah, blah, blah. And he asked who we were. And, you know, one of uh, volunteers turned around to show him the shirt that has our name, Austin Atheist Helping the Homeless on the back. And he went into a whole story. I was like, oh yeah, I've heard, I've heard about y'all. I heard about y'all a lot from folks that are out here on there, you know, he talked about the bus passes and we started kind of going into, you know, how much we're paying for them, how, uh, how we go about acquiring them, you know, what are the logistics kind of behind that to get that started because it makes a heck of a difference. And that's what he was reiterating to us that people, you know, random folks that were coming up to get food from his ministry over there were telling him about the fact that we were out there, you know, giving out bus passes and how big that was. And we've also been approached by the church under the bridge, uh, right under the under I-35 at 7th Street, where we do our main giveaway, where they were asking us about what goes into this program. How many do you give out? At what cost? Uh, does that go for? How often do you do that? You know, getting a lot of that because they seem interested to do something as well. We were the first group to actually start placing this type of regular thing out there for uh, those experiencing homelessness. It started making a lot of waves uh, because it was such a huge thing. In the Indian Community Homelessness Coalition meeting, as I mentioned before, there's all these different interests. You know, the city is there, county is there, VA is there, you know, Amazon is there, you know, as a council member, you know, you have all these people there. So I'm there as well as a community member representing Austin AHH. And there are other people there, such as I believe it's the Homeless Advisory Council. And so this is a council that is put together by the city of those that were experiencing homelessness currently or very recently, where they can give their point of view to all the big players in the room about you know what the state of homelessness is in Austin, what problems they're seeing. So basically to give their input into the process to make sure that their voices are heard at this big table. After things were over, you know, we were kind of going around talking about the things that each group does, you know, kind of like introducing yourself to one another, that type of thing. And so when it came to mind, I would say, you know, I'm Austin Atheist Helping the Homeless, and we go out to provide toiletries for those that are still waiting on their housing assignments. So we're a group that's helping people in the interim while they're waiting on larger things to happen as far as housing assignments and everything else. Uh, and we also give bus passes, month-long bus passes every three months. And so after everything was all over, one of the members of the Homeless Advisory Council, Donna, actually came up and was asking me about the bus pass program to talk about, you know, how, how much do you do? And I said, oh, we give about 200. And she was, you know, looking... <laughs> 
she was looking at me strangely and she was like, well, how much under, how much does that cost? And so we went over the cost. It was, it's $4,125 to do 200 passes. That's with the discount in place. You know, she was looking at that. She was like, that ain't nothing at all. You know, and she was speaking from a perspective of the large groups that were in that room with me, because these people get even in federal HUD dollars, you know, six figures, seven figures, um, you know, for their programs. And she was like, you know, the program that you have referencing the bus pass, you have no idea how big that is. And it was heartwarming to hear. Now, she went into, you know, some of her story a little bit and things that she had heard from folks out on the street. It was amazing to hear from her that we were doing something that she considered to be one of the most overlooked things. And she was so happy that we were actually doing something. She was also mad that some of the other groups <laughs> were not doing more in this regard. She was actually legitimately upset about that, considering our budget is so small compared to what these larger groups do. And she was like, you have no idea how big that is. And she said she's been trying for a while to get more people to do transportation because it changes everything for someone to be able to get around. I could just echo what she was saying and saying, I know, and we're trying our best and we're going to keep it going as long as we can. All right. Well, it's like you were saying, the couple that needed to get to their appointment Mm-hmm. maybe they could get a ride with somebody. You're talking about two people that have a regular appointment. That's on, it's an ongoing thing. Right. If the bus system is adequate, well, should I say the public transit system in general? Cause you know, Dallas has like the trains, which I wish was a thing in Austin and San Antonio. I just, you have no idea. <laughs> well, the bus is here, like where I'm at the bus system, it's cumbersome. Right. So it takes a long oh, okay. time to take public transport from where I live to get to downtown. I can get in my car and be downtown in 20 minutes. If I take a bus, it's an hour and a half. And so, yeah, that's that's the other thing, like depending on how it's where someone's located, uh, especially if they're on the outskirts, outskirts, it may be far more beneficial to schedule a ride like that or at the very least fund a service that Capital Metro can send because they have that van. That goes out for uh, folks that are uh, disabled in some. Yes, uh, in some I see manner. that in my neighborhood. And you can call that specifically to say, I need a ride from here. And they will do something like that. And so if that's already a program that exists for that particular purpose, they already have the special buses that can accommodate that, that are different from, of course, your normal buses. Like what I can see is that expanding a little bit further. You know, if you register with Capital Metro, so you have to pre-register yourself as someone that's low income, need in need of assistance to get from here to there, whatever it may be, to have something along those lines, or if they just want to just use the regular uh, bus system to say, hey, you know, we'll give you this card, and that card will serve as your ID, and you can we can reduce the amount that you're paying. Like, there's several programs that you can do, especially since Capital Metro is changing. They change from the paper passes to hard RFID cards. Oh, good. And are they re- they're, they're like refillable? Not yet. I asked that oh. question specifically to the Capital Metro personnel twice because I want to know because these cards last like these are tough cards and they can stand up 
to a lot of uh, bending and everything else. And if they're just RFIDs, then you just have a big database that you're using to work this. And so the guy, the gentleman that was there said, we will be working in the future to um, make them a reloadable type of instance. Right now, they're going to be one-time usage after it's done. You know, After the 31 days, you can scan it, but it's going to reject you. And so you'll just throw that card away for now. But the plan, as far as he was saying in the office, is to make them so they can actually be reloadable. Uh, so you're not having to use them like that. The amount of waste and plastic, you know, all that right. aside, <laughs> the campaign is launched on uh, our website, but we'll be doing a larger social media push later on this month, probably uh, into July to really, you know, bring this particular situation in this program to the forefront because somebody getting a bus pass every three months, but it's still a risk of what if I'm not in line yet? You know, what if I miss it? You know, there, there's still these these things that are in the air that throw people in a state of uncertainty around it. But for the folks, like we we have three people now that we are supporting with bus passes every single month. Uh, we'll mail them out to their uh, homes where they're staying now. They're uh, both of them have housing assignments. That's where we'll be sending the bus passes for them to take care of it. And we're in talks of adding a few more, uh, particularly those that are on the more southern side at 290 and 71 and I-35 that intersect down a little bit further south in Austin. And on the campaign, when you actually sign to to donate, and so you go to uh, atheist.help. Um, in this case, it's a bus dot atheist dot help and it takes you right to the transit program our little introductory page and when you click to go to the paypal link uh, in order to pay your actual payment schemes because you because you can put buttons here so we actually put it in terms of providing one person with the ability to travel worry free for 31 days is 20 dollars if you want to do two people it's 4125 if you want to do four that's at 103 and so it gives people these bite-sized nuggets so that you can really understand that if you, as you mentioned, buy this one pass, this $20 pass that a person does not have to worry about how they're going to get to and fro from an entire month. That and you are going to send me those links so that I can add them into the description, right? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Do I mean, that before it's... you go on vacation. <laughs> Well, we did it simple. So I've owned uh, like the domain atheist.help. This is it's both plural and singular atheist. Doesn't matter which one you do. But atheist.help is, you know, that's the easiest thing you could tell. Like, oh, how, how do you find this? Go, go to atheist.help. That's what we do. We're atheists and we're helping the homeless. So there you go. But if you just do bus.atheist.help, uh, it'll take you directly to that uh, impression page and you can click right there to go to the PayPal and uh, donate, whether it's just one time or you do it monthly, we're going to get these passes into the hands of folks that are needing them and do so in a way that we will be able to do so each and every month. And so for those two folks, the Facebook message I was reading earlier, for those two folks, they're going to have another one in the mail in two days from the time of this uh, initial recording. I'll have another one in the mail for them so that they don't have to worry about lapsing. That's, uh, you know, I, I didn't want that's even be a concern. Like, what if it doesn't arrive in time? Like, nope, you will get it before the month end. You're re you'll be ready to rock and roll. And so they, you know, there was you know some tears shed as you know I was going over how the program would work and how long it would last. And I told them that you know 
in no less than six months. And after that time, uh, we'll look at our resources. And if we have people that are contributing to this program, then they will be able to continue to receive those passes as they are working to build their savings and to change their lives. They're, I mean, they're two amazing people. I met them both and oh, they're, they're so fun. And they're just, to hear someone's story and how they got there and the struggles they've had to go through in order to escape over this last year and a half, it was, it's a lot. It's a much more than what people think it is and much more complicated than what you see on those simplistic, um, very snarky responses when you're talking about homeless people in public forums and stuff like that. But the amount of issues they've had to go, go through so many different pieces in their background, it was very awing to hear. This is exactly why we made this program. Like it was uncanny how the timing worked out for them. It's been an amazing experience for them and for us. Well, speaking of amazing experiences, it's always amazing to have you on. <laughs> we are hitting the end of our time, the end of our chat here, just at our time for the meeting. So oh, no. <laughs> I need to wrap us up, but I want to thank you so much for coming back on and talking about this in a more extended format. I really felt that this was an issue, especially now. I think there's such a spike in homelessness in the U.S. And I really believed that this was an issue that needed to have a more in-depth conversation. I really appreciate it. And so I just want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for the information. Thank you for forwarding those links. And I really hope that uh, people will take advantage of it and look into it. I know that not everybody's in a position to give. Mm -hmm. If you're not in a position to give, you're probably in a position to share some links. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a fun experience being here in general with you. <sighs> yeah, obviously, one day we'll be back in person doing this. I'm sure we'll just, you know, be <laughs> piled around in a living room somewhere. But it's it's always a good time. And it's always on something that I think is worthy of highlighting something that needs to be talked about. And it's I'm so grateful to have this platform here to to talk about those kind of things. So well, I, really appreciate I hope it, it I hope it helps. And thank you so much. And I will talk to you again when you're back. for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. <laughs>